0: Hello, and welcome to the Movie Mouth Film and TV Podcast, a podcast for all things movies, including news, reviews, and interviews, where we provide insights for listeners who are interested in or looking to make it in the movie business. We are extremely excited this week, and if you're a Tarantino fan, you should be too, because we have not one, but two entire sections of this week's show dedicated to his masterpiece, Pulp Fiction, including an exclusive interview with the casting director known for his work on the movie. Plus... We'll be reviewing some of this week's biggest releases from the likes of Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Video On Demand. But do you know the difference between Movie Mouth and other podcasts? It's the little differences. I mean, they got the same shit over there, just here, it's a little different. As ever, this week I'm joined by the jewels to my Vincent, the quarter pounder to my Royale with Cheese, the Gimp to my (laughs) Zed. Yes, it's my very own favourite Honey Bunny... Please empty your wallets and don't make any sudden movements. Here's Phil. Hello. Hi, Phil. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Very good. So what have you been watching this week?
1: This week? So I have watched... Yesterday I watched the first episode of uh, Snowpiercer, the Netflix Mm. um, series, the new Netflix series. So this is based on... Um, originally it's based on a 1982 graphic novel of the same name mm-hmm. um, but then I think the series has been based on the 2013 film by um, Bong Joon-ho who yep. directed um, Parasite mm-hmm. um, I've not seen that original film I think it's is it Chris Evans in
0: that I believe yeah, Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton have you seen it I have I saw it I think when it came out it's it's a strange movie. It came out in twenty thirteen, but it never actually had an official release in the UK, still oh, to right. this day. It's oh, okay. an interesting property that. for them to remake into a TV show.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just saw the I saw the trailer for it on Netflix and thought that looked interesting. Looked up my street. I like these kind of you know, dystopian thrillers. So so yeah, what it is, it's based on a giant train. Um, that's got a thousand and one carriages so it's pretty big (laughs) and basically the world's ended the they tried to fix global warming and instead they broke it and froze the whole earth is the is the story and then everyone piled onto this uh, train. It's got sort of like the elite of the world that paid, you know, billions to get onto it. And um, and then you've got the people at the back that they call tailors, which uh, they sort of forced their way onto it when, it when the shit hit the fan, basically. And now, um, yeah, so you've got different classes on the same train and it just spends its time circling around the globe and not stopping. As it, you know, as any good train would. And you only watched
0: the, the first episode.
1: I watched the first episode. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's. Um, I really enjoyed it actually for, for the first one. I thought, you know, a lot of character setup as as they do in first episodes of things. But um, so it's got Jennifer Connolly. She plays the sort of train announcer, mm-hmm. um, or the voice of the train, um, and then she's um, joined by um david Diggs who i've not I, I can't say i've seen him in anything else before and he plays andre Layton and he's a, he's a former um homicide detective mm-hmm. and they and he's one of the tailors that sort of is looked down upon because he forced his way onto the train and you know he's, he's way back in the in the back where they sort of keep them basically prisoner locked in and fed rations you know um but he there's a murder on the train and he gets there's uh, been a murder. It's been a murder. And he gets taken out to um basically investigate and try and solve this murder hmm. on the train. Well, David
0: um, Diggs, I know I think he was in the original cast of um the Broadway production of uh Lynn Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. And right. he, he won a Grammy and a Tony for his performance in that. So right. I think he's also a musician. I think he also has a uh, some kind of uh, kind of rap group as well um, and uh, and in, in the hip hop scene. Um, so interested to see his his performance in this going from stage and music into a pretty heavy, it looks like, production on Netflix, right?
1: Yes, it, Netflix, it came out. I think it came out this week. Um, first, it, it's one of the ones where they're sort of I think the first two episodes are available instantly and then mm-hmm. they're doing a, a, an episode per week.
0: We don't actually have it here in the us but it is it's out uh, i know in europe on netflix um it's it's on tnt here in in um in the us so it might be one okay. you have to check out on hulu or cable if you have access to that
1: yeah but yeah we recommend it so far
0: i'll stick with it what about you you've been cool. watching anything new Ah, well, rather depressingly, um, I'm now officially addicted to Netflix's uh, reality TV show Terrace House, which I talked about a little bit last week. But this week, Kenny and Rosarco left the house and I am devastated. Yeah. I have no as idea you what hear. you're talking about. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sad that they left, actually, because they were the only two people that were giving any kind of fun or any reason to watch the show but they have replaced them with two really interesting characters so anyone that's watching that um i really recommend it and uh i'm i'm actually obsessed with this show and i promise i won't mention it again because i'm almost at the end of it but i think everyone should watch this just because of those little details between um between the dating scene that we're so used to and the dating scene in uh in japan um i also i also ordered myself this week an oculus quest which is a virtual reality uh, headset that you can use for gaming, but also for streaming films and movie content. Yeah. And I've been taking uh, part in some kind of social watches of some movies in that, which is pretty fun. and <laughs> Definitely a cool thing to do during quarantine. Um, and, and also funnily enough, I watched one of our movies actually in the Oculus Quest app uh, for the Amazon Prime app, in fact, um, this week, which was awesome because you have a, I was laying in bed, watching a 100 foot screen in front of me in in it's my crazy. own movie theater. Which, yeah, I mean, I mean,
1: we we did the nerdiest thing possible. We met up in virtual. It basically, felt like I was in Ready Ready Player One when we
0: met up in virtual reality. We did. We were waving at each other and letting off fireworks and throwing them at each other. It was just <laughs> just like being back together again. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so let's go to our listener question this week. Um, each week, we ask our listeners for a movie related question. This week, our bat signal was answered by Jason Kim in Detroit, who would like to know. Hi, Phil and Miles. As a self-certified movie and travel freak, many of the destinations I've visited around the globe have been inspired by the movies I love. Some recent examples are going to Budapest to visit a location for the Las Vegas casino scene in Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049. Although, I wish I had Roger Deakins' film and lighting crew for my Instagram photos. The question is... What are your favorite movie locations that you've visited? And what are your dream locations that you still yet to go to? Phil?
1: That's a good one, isn't it? That's a good question. So for me, uh, I, I ticked off one of these. And you're probably going to know what this is. A couple of years ago, when I came to visit you over in New York, we basically had a Ghostbusters extravaganza. And I managed to tick off visiting the um, the Ghostbusters headquarters, which was amazing. The fire yes, station, we, we went to Dana's apartment near Central Park, didn't we? we and yes, we, did. we also went to the restaurant that Lois Tully gets chased uh, gets chased into by uh, the terror dog. So it, yeah, it was awesome. Oh, and the library, like entrance as well. So we managed to do like all of the ghostbusters uh locations in new york well pretty, most of them anyway
0: but, i yeah, love that but so, you really embarrassed me when you ran up to the conservatory at the restaurant banging on the glass screaming at all of the uh <laughs> the people eating their their quiet dinners and lunches
1: <laughs> sliding down the window slowly <laughs> you didn't yeah. have
0: to slide down the glass i mean really <laughs>
1: um yeah so that's that was one that was that's a massive tick off the list for me mm. um, Trying to think of another one. I th- I think I would love to go to Alcatraz, um, not only because of escape from Alcatraz and the sort of history around it, anyway, mm-hmm. but obviously as you know, I'm going to say the Rock being. Set Welcome on to the Rock. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd love to go there, but I think there's like a massive waiting list to get on there, though.
0: It's it's something like I think at least six weeks in advance. I, I've been to San Francisco. I've been. To Alcatraz. I I mean, I've been around it. Unfortunately, I I went on a road trip and I didn't get a chance to book tickets before. Um, So I've been on a boat that sailed around it, um, but I still haven't been on it. So maybe that's something that we can plan to do post-COVID, get out there and relive our Stanley Goodspeed um, fantasies. (laughs) (laughs) I've also visited many filming locations around the world. I remember um, one memorable Knight was retracing Anthony Hopkins' steps around Florence um, as he stalks his prey in that fantastic scene in Ridley Scott's Hannibal. Um, mm. I, I've danced on the Joker stairs in the Bronx, along with everyone else that lives in New York, it seems. <laughs> um, but my hands-down most exotic location has to be um, Petra in Jordan, uh, where, of course, the final scenes of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusader filmed, which is the the Grand Treasury, which is... Accessible by a tiny canyon, which regularly flash floods, um, but it opens up into this beautiful vista where you can see the columns and the fascia of the building have been carved by hand in the sandstone. Um, but I can confirm that I didn't find a two thousand year old knight. But I, <laughs> I definitely shame. chose wisely when <laughs> contemplating that trip. Um, I'd say my dream destination. Uh, It'd have to be Hawaii for Jurassic Park. Um, yeah, getting in a helicopter, flying through the the mountains, wearing a full leather jacket, and talking about my love for chaos as per Jeff Goldblum. Um, there's
1: there's no way you couldn't have the Jurassic Park like theme tune on, like on a massively loud speaker while you're on the helicopter flying over the yeah. scenery.
0: Yeah, it'd be like Apocalypse Now, but instead of uh, it being kind of rock and roll tune. Um, yeah. It would have to be, uh, or the flight of the Valkyries. It would have to be John Williams' score, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I'd also love to go to Tokyo and Kyoto to visit all of the awesome, awesomely filmed locations in Lost in Translation, which yeah. uh, is something I've always wanted to do. We're talking about that a lot now, so that's one I'm definitely going to book as soon as we're out of this uh, this COVID situation. So, thank you very much for uh, the question this week. Keep those questions coming. Um, please find us on Instagram uh, at the Movie Mouth Podcast uh, or on Facebook and send us an, uh, an IM. And we will happily look into answering your questions on next week's show. So, in the news this week, Phil, what have you picked up on with your radars, with your both and spies? News. So, it's sad news
1: to start with. Um, learned today, while I was writing up some notes for the show, that um, Ian Holm had died today. Um, uh, Ian Holm being star of... Uh, he's been in Aliens and uh, Lord of the Rings, played Bilbo Baggins and Chariots of Fire. He's known for those. Um, but he's a great actor. But, yeah,
0: real shame. He was an incredible, incredible actor. He made it to the, the ripe old age of 88, um, and uh, which is you know, impressive for anyone, I think, you know, obviously standout roles you mentioned uh, in the, the Hobbit and, of course, Lord of the Rings trilogies. Uh, for me, I think it's it was his role in um, Ridley Scott's Alien, as you mentioned, mm. and, you know, some, some fun trivia about that is apparently he absolutely hated, detested the taste of milk. And during his final scene in Alien, obviously, um, with uh, Ash, as Ash, the, the kind of uh, synthetic human, um, he has to kind of gargle a lot of a lot of milk which is the kind of synthetic <laughs> blood of this, this, this kind of cyborg and yeah he's kind of spitting that out and apparently he absolutely detested it that was his kind of underlying memory from that but obviously a lot of people will remember him as Bilbo Baggins and uh, and how amazing he was in in those movies I also remember him in The Borrowers I believe oh yeah um, yeah I forgot about I that kid. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so yeah very very sad news uh, indeed in other news, uh, Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League just revealed an image from the original villain Darkseid, who was replaced by the rather crap, let's face it, Steppenwolf in the recut movie by Joss Whedon that hit theatres. Warner Brothers are actually spending between 20 to $30 million to help finish the director's original cut, including um, CG and effects. And apparently, according to Snyder, uh, the, the movie that hit theatres only used about a quarter um, of what he filmed before he sadly had to leave the the project due to some, some very uh, upsetting family issues. Um, and Warner Brothers are actually going to consider releasing the movie now in its new form as an episodic format on HBO Max in
1: 2021.
0: Mm, that sounds like it could be good. Sounds like movie fans finally got what they wanted, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a lot of money to spend on it as well. But you know, (laughs) it's going to make it back. (laughs) That's great. So Um, so I checked out a couple of trailers this week. Uh, First one was Palm Springs, and this is a new comedy starring Andy Samberg um, from uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine Mm -hmm. and Hot Rod. I mean, I don't watch Brooklyn Nine Nine, but Hot uh, Rod is incredible. I've seen Hot Rod, and I love, I love that (laughs) film. Cool Beans, Uh, yeah, Cool Beans, which is. That uh, you just reminded me that is a very odd scene, but brilliant. Um, <laughs> it yeah, so what frame of mind you're watching the movie, <laughs> yeah, it's true. So it, st- it stars him and uh, Kristen Milotti, uh, yeah. who was in uh, Wolf of Wall Street and she's in How I Met Your Mother as well, mm-hmm. and lots of other things. So it looks like, um, quite a fun and a lot more adult, uh, Groundhog Day uh, type you know, stuck repeating the same day uh, type comedy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's nothing new. It's been done, obviously, but it, this does look quite funny. It looks like they go a bit further with it, you know, in a more adult way and a sort of a lot more, you know, in one of the scenes in the trailer, you can see them just running each other over in cars on different days. And <laughs> I, I know Bill Murray does that a bit. In, well, he drives off a cliff, doesn't he, in Groundhog Day? Yeah. Um, but, yeah. It's, with, it's, with, it's... with punks Tony Phil... Uh, in the passenger seat yeah that's right (laughs) Um, yeah so it looks like it could be a lot of fun you know Um, so yeah quite looking forward to that one that's coming out on the 10th of July on Hulu I saw that advertised Um, the other one I saw was um, so this is Train to Busan Presents Peninsula Hmm. so the follow up to the 2016 uh, south korean zombie flick train to busan uh, i think it's been marketed as um peninsula this like that full title so train to busan presents peninsula mm-hmm. um and it's set 4 years after train to busan takes place um and it just looks like you know a sort of decent uh it's got those horrible zombies in it that are the super fast, scary zombies Uh-oh. that you really wouldn't want to encounter. <laughs> not the slow, Maybe shambling, not. Dawn
0: of the Dead type zombies. Shaun of the Dead type zombies that you can throw yeah. your uh, record collection at. <laughs> yeah. Including Bad yeah. Dance.
1: <laughs> yeah, just the people painted grey. <laughs> um, but yeah, this looks like it. Yeah, it could be a lot of fun. Lo- loads of crazy action in the, in the trailer. So that's worth a look as well. Is that coming to Netflix, did you say? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, actually. I didn't see where that was coming out. Um, I don't think it was a Netflix one. No. Um, I'd have to look
0: it up. I saw there was a trailer, actually, for a new Netflix show uh, that's dropping on July 2nd, which is Warrior Nun. And (laughs) this is a new 10-part show. It sees a group of young nuns fighting an ancient evil with swords and machine guns. It kind of looks like a like a mix-up between Zack Snyder's, mentioning him again, um, oft-maligned sexploitation movie Sucker Punch and Francis Lawrence's Constantine with Keanu Reeves. Right. Um, and it actually looks like a lot of fun. I, like from the name, I was ready to give it a miss, obviously straight away.
1: Well, I wasn't. I was ready to jump on it straight away.
0: Yeah, but you never know <laughs> with a name like that. It's, it's no. a bit like Money Plane, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's so literal. <laughs> <When Snake's laughs> and on I still plane, really want to see that. Yeah, <laughs> and we will be reviewing that. <laughs> um, but it wasn't until the end of the trailer, trailer where you see giant letters that state how many fucks given, and then the response, none, spelled N-U-N oh, I instantly f- love it at this point. Yeah, I was done. So, yeah. um, get me, get me on board. I mean, you
1: got to remember, Miles, you are talking to a guy that when we worked at a record shop together, I bought a film purely on its title. Uh, titled Samurai Commando Mission 1549, <laughs> <laughs> which I still own to this day. I've only watched it once. I, I, yeah. I can't, to be honest, I can't remember much about it. I need to watch that again.
0: We were also extras in a UK-based kung fu movie called Brighton Walk. Yeah. What was the full title, though? Do you remember? Oh, you, can you remind me, please?
1: Brighton Walk the legend of ganja boxing
0: <laughs> we we were in this scene where where phil i think threw me through something over a table or something
1: it was like yeah through like a market stall table
0: what the hell were we doing i wasn't even paid paid to do that why why no. did we do that
1: also it sounds very extravagant it wasn't um at all it was like the kind of table you get like a
0: yard sale <laughs>
1: You know, I just picked you up and threw you through
0: You <laughs> really did. You really did. I still haven't seen the actual film, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. I do own it. Um, I wish I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the news. And this week we have not one, but two reviews, starting with Amazon Prime's 7500. Phil, what do you think about this one? So this is, uh, I watched this this afternoon and
1: it came out today. And it's an action thriller um, directed uh, in his feature-length debut, actually, by Patrick Volrath. Uh, So, yeah, new director. Um, And it's uh, about a terrorist plane hijacking. Uh, A group of guys try to take over a a cockpit of a flight uh, from Germany, uh, which is manned by the captain and his co-pilot, which is played by um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Mm-hmm. Um, making his return to film as well, he hasn't done hasn't been film seen for, in a while, huh? No, about four. I think it's his first film in about four years. He Snowden, took some time off.
0: Maybe was his last film? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: Snowden. Um, I think he took some time off just to you know look after his family and bits and pieces. But um, yeah, it's good to see him back. Um, so I think the thing that makes this very different, uh, something I really enjoyed, is it's filmed almost entirely. Uh, within the cockpit of the plane. Hmm. So the only outside view that you get as a viewer of the film is uh, through the security camera monitor that the pilots use um, to, you know, allow access or to see who's outside or knocking on the door of the cabin for security. Mm -hmm. So and it's it's such a great effective um, use of, you know, the set basically it must have been very odd to film, like being in that one sort of small space for long lengths of time. But um, apparently, Gordon Levitt trained for two months with um, with actually his on screen the guy who plays the captain next to him, played by Carlo uh, Kitzlinger, um, and he was a actual commercial airline pilot um, that uh, turned to acting. Wow, um, yeah. So, but I mean, you can see that it's paid off because whenever they're doing, you know, procedural stuff for the plane and it just feels really, really authentic. Like, mm. you know, it, it does feel very good. And um, I'm sure it's been researched a lot, but I'm having that real pilot there, I'm sure was quite a help as well. Um, so, yeah, I think, as I was saying, what, what I find so interesting is, um, about it is the fact that the director is sort of getting you to essentially see everything from Gordon Levitt's um, character's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, he He's playing an American pilot that lives in Germany, but he doesn't speak German, um, which is sort of brought up quite early on. Um, and, but in the film, a lot of the dialogue is in German, but it's not, um it's not subtitled. So, Oh, okay. And as a, you know, there's scenes in it, you know, I'm not going to go into spoilers with this or anything, but there's scenes in it where, you know, the hijackers are screaming at each other. There's lots of dialogue going on in German, and you really, really want to know what is being said as of, you know, someone watching it. And you can just tell that, you, you know, Gordon Levitt wants to know what's going on, but he doesn't understand. And in that situation where you're, you know, the pilot of a plane that's being hijacked, which is pretty intense you know you can feel his frustration that he doesn't know what's being said or what the ter- what, what the the hijackers want you know and it's yeah it's great it's a real good use of sort of you know not subtitling it was a fantastic move i think um yeah it's just a it's so it's the most intense film i've watched in quite a while it's it's only an hour and a half long um but it is yeah it's full on for that sort of for that hour and a half it's pretty mm-hmm. yeah edge of the seat stuff definitely mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that's a yeah, that's a massive recommend from me for that one.
0: Okay. Yeah. And that's out on Amazon Prime everywhere as of today, which is Friday, June nineteenth. Uh, yep. Um, great. I'm gonna have to watch that one over the weekend then. Yeah. Um, this week I watched uh the Kevin Bacon starring You Should Have Left, which is David Kep's new Bloomhouse produced horror movie. Um, Where Kevin Bacon is stars opposite Amanda Seyfried, um, who are a married couple with skeletons aplenty in their closets, um, who have decided to relocate from their stressful Hollywood lifestyle to the much calmer, tranquil climes of a modern house rental in the Welsh countryside, or so they think. Um, so Bacon and Seyfried are incredibly strong in this. Um, you know, clearly a safe pair of hands um, uh, as far as the acting talent goes. And the young child who plays, plays their daughter is an absolute revelation. Um, the, the story starts as a kind of fish out of water tale, not unlike the wicker man, whose overbearing shadow is, is everywhere on this. But where that movie smartly dialed up the weirdness until you could barely breathe, this movie is very much a game of two halves. So, um, you know, it starts off where um, obviously we, we see our characters relocate to Wales. Um, they move into this new kind of uh, this new house that's been built less than four years ago. Um, and as they kind of settle in, obviously things start to go awry. So no spoilers here. Um, but I really believed in the relationship between the main cast. Um, you feel... Uh, that obviously this is, a, this is a top talent production from the writing upwards. Um, however, the second half does pull us into the more familiar head fuckery territory, um, you know, kind of as La Maison Terrible becomes more of a psychological horror. Um, and the scars don't really feel earned uh, and an ending which doesn't so much as close the door but slam it shut with a really abrupt bang. And, you know, perhaps that's its downfall as as kept, you know, does his best here to sprinkle some nice humor elements to the script. There's a really fun scene where Kevin Bacon visits a local shop for local people um, in the village and asks for some basic grocery supplies like bread and milk, etc. When the the shopkeeper asks him if he'd like anything else, Kevin Bacon replies, sorry, I don't speak Welsh, even though he was speaking in English, which is, which is pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's based on a it is based on a novel, and, and I feel like, you know, like the the plot and like the characters in the movie, it never really escapes the thresholds of its own source material. So I'd recommend this for a rainy day if you like movies along the lines of Secret Window, the others, or you know, Kate Blanchett and the Gift. But in general, I'm sorry to say this is a little bit of a miss for me. Our guest this week is a casting director who's worked alongside some of Hollywood's biggest players, including such diverse names as William Friedkin with To Live and Die in L.A., Chris Farley in Beverly Hills Ninja, and one of Netflix's biggest hits with the young adult rom-com The Kissing Booth. But it's his work on 1994's Quentin Tarantino masterpiece, Pulp Fiction, that he's probably best known. Please welcome to the Movie Mouth podcast, Gary Zuckerbrod.
2: Hey, Phil and Miles.
0: Hi, Gary. Hey, Gary. Thanks for joining us. Sure. So as you know, our podcast is here to help individuals learn more about the inner workings of movie production. Can you explain a little bit um, to our listeners what it means to be a casting director? So
2: casting directors, we're one of the younger disciplines in, in filmmaking and uh, TV. Um, we came about in the 19... 19- 50s the independent casting directors came about in the 1950s after the breakup of the studios before that we would have been what was termed talent scouts going out and finding talent that the studios would have signed under contracts when those contracts ended uh, and projects needed casts they found people who knew a lot of actors some of them were assistants to the um, directors. Some of them were assistants to presidents. And in the late 1950s, early 60s, the independent casting director came about. Some of the um, big independent casting directors from that time were Marion Dougherty, uh, Lynn Stallmaster, Mike Fenton. And these were sort of the names of the casting gods when I first started uh, in the industry. So yep. that's, that's the history. Today, what a casting director does is we, we are generally hired by the creative entity of a producer or director. Oftentimes, we're recommended by studios or networks to producers and directors. And what our job is to fill the artistic vision of what they see in each role with living beings we unlike a an art director who can paint a set a wall in a set green one day and the director can walk over and say gee the green isn't working let's paint it blue and the next day it's blue and then blue isn't working i'll paint it yellow yellow okay (laughs) yellow works we're dealing with actors and so we're dealing with the interpretation that a producer and a director have of a role and then the interpretation that an actor makes on that role and which actors we will present to producers, directors, networks, and studios to eventually fill that role and put a puzzle together. Because when you're putting together a cast, once you cast one role, or let's say there's a leading actor attached, everything changes a little bit in terms of who is surrounding that leading person. So that gives you an overview of what a
1: casting director does on a very broad spectrum. Sure. That's great though. Um, so can I ask, how did you, um, how did you get your start in the industry? Um,
2: I, I had gone into retail after I graduated college. I was living in New York where I grew up. Uh, I was, I was very lucky. My parents were, great doers. We were always doing something. We were going to a Mets game or we were going to a museum or (laughs) we were traveling somewhere. And I saw my first Broadway show when I was nine years old. It was the original company of 1776. And I was just, that was it. I was smitten. And my (laughs) older brother, who is a year and a half older than I am, used to take the Long Island Railroad into Manhattan on Saturday afternoons and see, or in the summer on Wednesday afternoons, and we would see everything. We would get two first. We would get two tickets in the balcony for $4. <laughs> and I, I mean, I saw, I mean, I would literally say hundreds of plays. Um, and wow. so when I was looking for a job after my retail fiasco, a friend of my dad's knew a casting director who was doing theater in New York and introduced me to her, a woman named Bonnie Timmerman. She's kind of one of the legendary casting directors now. Um, you probably hate to hear that me say that. Uh, <laughs> but she, uh, I worked for her for almost four years,
1: and she was a okay. great teacher. Um, so I, that's how I got my start in casting. So what what age were you when, when you sort of started that then?
2: I was 20, 23,
1: 24. Okay, cool. Yeah. Pretty early on then for, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: So, um, and and then what happened was I, when I left her, I got a job. Uh, William Friedkin was in New York and the casting director, who was doing his casting, it was casting the leads in New York, which as I said, at that time, everybody wanted New York actors for the leads in their movies. And he really wanted a cast of unknowns um, for this movie to live and die in LA. Hmm. And so the, uh, I was hired as the casting assistant and we were bringing in all the hot actors at the time. You know, uh, William Peterson was out of Chicago Uh, He was kind of attached right before I got on, but I knew Willem Dafoe from the Wooster Group and John Turturro I had seen in Danny in the Deep Blue Sea, um, which was his, his major sort of entree into everybody knowing him in New York. It was an off-broadway play by John Patrick Shanley. And we were just looking at, um, you know, just all of these new interesting faces so uh, I was asked to come out to Los Angeles to help complete the casting uh, with the casting director. And I did, and I never intended to stay in Los Angeles. At it, In 1984, Los Angeles was a very different place than it is now, and mm. it wasn't to my liking. Um, but the casting director who I was working for got offered uh, a new version of The Twilight Zone at CBS. Uh, that started shooting in 1985 and he asked me to be his associate on that and I said no and he kind of begged me and I said I'll stay until you find another associate (laughs) and about two months into it he just boarded a plane and moved back to New York and they made me the casting director and it was one of the great opportunities because there were no series regulars and you know so you know, I knew who Fran McDorman was and, uh, and Bill Peterson, you know, I knew. Mm-hmm. So I asked them to do an episode together and, uh, you know, Joe Montana and Joan Allen, I thought, oh, that's a good pairing for an episode. And we got them and Helen Mirren did an episode and uh, wow. I bumped into Bruce Willis on the streets in Beverly Hills and I said, hey Bruce, I, I, he, I, I've got this great role in the Twilight Zone, Wes Craven's director. And he said, Gary, I love Wes Craven. So, Bruce came in and I mean, and you know, I flew Nathan Lane out for a small part <laughs> and that, and that it was great. It was great. It was just, it was just clear vision of whatever we thought was right for the roles. Um, and then I just started getting jobs after that was over as an independent casting director.
0: That clear vision of, you know, how to cast and who to cast, you know, is an interesting one. And, and what I'd love to know is how has casting changed? in the last, you know, five, 10 years with the emergence of, you know, a saturation of content, more platforms, and an increase in diversity in roles?
2: Well, the biggest, I was going to say, the biggest change is, and which is just fantastic, is the incredible diversity in roles. And part of that is not only that, they're writing roles that are for a more diverse feel in film and television and theater, but that the pool of actors has increased because the jobs are there. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really, it's it's the growth of, and the depth that has really increased since I started. Uh, I I cast the first um, co-production between NHK, which is Japanese public television, and PBS. Mm -hmm. It was the story of Edward and Haru Reischauer, two historical figures under the Kennedy administration. Edward Reischauer was the ambassador to Japan under Kennedy. And you can look up who they were. Haru Reischauer was a... They they were celebrities in Japan. Um, But I had to cast uh, almost, uh, Haru Raishawa we cast out of Japan and there was a a Japanese shadow director to the American director, but I had a cast in all, almost entirely Japanese cast and my pool was pretty shallow. Today, it's so much greater. I mean, there's east-west players in Los Angeles where um, African, uh, where Asian um, actors can get a start. The social stigma of being an actor in the Asian community has, you know, has has changed drastically. You know, parents aren't upset that their kids aren't becoming doctors and lawyers. Um, so there's now there's a there's a sort of and even a bit of a connection back to the roots of Asian theater. Um, and it's just it's just been amazing to see that change in the industry and how dedicated we all are to making casting look like the real world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the difference, isn't it, really? Yeah. So um what what would you say are the different the main differences between casting for TV and film?
2: These days that line is is that line is getting smaller and smaller um for film i mean for traditional film um for a movie that's being released in a theater which you know who knows what that's going to look like um, <laughs> but yeah. with you still need that that star name that star marquee name um and you to get to get people into buying seats but it's it's changing a little bit what what has changed is that for television used to be the place that you discovered people and film was the place that you put the stars that you had just that grew up and that that kind of has changed now it's across the board because look some of the, Broadcast um, shows are, the quality is equal or superior to what's coming out in film.
1: Sure.
2: And with the, you know, popularity of the independent film world, um, you can have a small movie that has unknown actors or unknown to the public. And that movie can, you know, be a blockbuster hit. Hmm you know, like Parasite, I mean, a blockbuster hit, it was the content. And I think, I think audiences have just gotten more sophisticated about content. Yeah. So that increases the popularity, the, the, the possibilities in casting.
0: Yeah. And I think one thing I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in this current climate, um, is, is how does your, your role as a casting director, um, help shape pictures, um, or productions when it comes to diversity. So what is your, your role in, in engaging with, you know, that production and, and suggesting options for, for the cast that would then present more diversity within, within those, those features?
2: Well, I don't think that's changed very much in the last 10, 15 years. It's really, in terms of what the casting director's role is, we, we have to search, we have to do bigger searches if a role is specifically labeled. But um, it's casting directors have, have for a very long time always said to, always looked for a different, you know, a, a, a more artistic way to fulfill a role. Mm. And that could be, Okay, you have a, a scene in a hospital, um, and you have a parent who's dying in a bed. Well, nothing in that was specifically written white. Can that parent be Latin? Can that parent be Asian?
1: Hmm.
2: Can that parent be you know, African-American? Um, and you know, you'd have that discussion with your producers. Um, and that happened all the time. We we were saying, you know, how do we make this look more like the real world? How do we, how do we diversify this? You know, um, it, it, there were times where during I was casting a television series, and you know, as the act, the producers and directors said, just get us the best actors. So there was a great role. It was a, a series called Without a Trace, and there was an amazing role for. Um, a father who was missing their, their child was missing. And I said, guys, there's this, you all know who Charles Dutton is. He's that great stage Mm -hmm. actor. I just called his agent and said, by any chance, is he available? And do you think he'd be interested? And they said, if it's a great role, absolutely. And he got an Emmy nomination for that role. You know, that's what a casting director's role is.
1: Yeah. Excellent. So I um, understand from your IMDb page that um, you cast Oma Thurman in her first ever role.
2: Um, I did. I uh, It was a movie called Johnny Be Good and it was Anthony Michael Hall and Robert Downey Jr. Um, Anthony Michael Hall was the big star at yep. that time, you know, coming off the, the the teen flicks that he had done.
0: Yeah. The John Hughes movies. Yeah. The John Hughes yep. movies. And, yeah. um,
2: so we had a really hard time finding the female lead and you, know, my associate and I read, Oh God, everybody. It was just, and nobody was, nobody was getting what, I mean, you know, this was a, a sort of rom-com movie and just nobody was getting it. And I went to New York to look at actors in New York. We, this was, we were, Uh, Shooting in Texas, but um, we, you know, so you at that time, you really didn't, if you were casting a movie, you actually sent the casting director to New York to look for actors, um, as well as looking in Los Angeles. And a friend of mine who was a manager said, I have this girl. She's 16 years old. She's done some modeling. She's an actress. I read her. I was just, I was, that was it. She had the role, she knew what the role was. I took her over by cab to the producer and director who were in another hotel. And I said, you've got to read this actress. They read, we read her, she left. They said, thank you. And they said, done, make a deal. Great. So, um,
0: yeah. And the rest is history. And yeah, the rest, As
2: they she, should. the rest is history, but the the reality is whether it was that movie or another movie, she was destined. I mean, she had something special. You just, you knew it. Um, I, I mean, as a casting director, my instincts were like, you know, it was the hair on the back of my neck stood up because the talent, the the energy, what, the, the individuality of what came across was just so special.
1: Yeah, you just knew. <laughs>
0: So you've mentioned many of the incredible projects that you've been a part of. And as huge fans of Quentin Tarantino here at the Movie Mouth podcast, we'd love to know if you can tell us a little bit more about working with Quentin and how you got involved with casting Pulp Fiction alongside Ronnie Yeskel.
2: Um, So Ronnie had cast Reservoir Dogs. And when I started in casting, um, Ronnie was the casting director's associate, Bonnie Timmerman was the casting director I started with. Um, Ronnie was Bonnie's associate and I was the assistant. And we just came from the same place of New York theater and New York actors and um, had the same sort of training. So Ronnie, when Quentin asked Ronnie to do uh, Pulp Fiction, she was doing another movie that was a very... That, uh, that had a lot of roles and it. it was an animation movie and she was doing a lot of roles. And she said, I, I'm not going to have, all not going to be able to give my full attention, but I know somebody who has exactly the same taste and training that I do. And he's a good, good friend. And so that's how I got involved with Pulp Fiction.
0: And how was it working with Quentin?
2: Oh, fantastic. He's, I mean, again, this was a long time ago, but he he was fun he was um smart he had a point of view he knew so many actors uh he 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 loves actors and there's nothing like that when you're a casting director to work with a, a director or a producer that just loves actors yeah and so we would you know like there's an actress bridget brana who i have no idea what's happened to her but she was in a movie. She was an Irish actor and she was in a movie that had come out in the States. And so she happened to be in the States and we were like, said, Oh, we got to see her. And she came in and Quentin was like, that's it. That's done. Um, You know, and there were there were lots of different stories. Like, like Ving Rhames, we had a very hard time casting that role. Uh, And So he was going to New York and I knew Ving well from New York and he, you know, Ronnie and I said, you've got to see this actor in New York while you're there. Mm. And he did. And he said, you know, done. That's, that's the actor. And it was kind of like that through a lot of the film. Um, The role that Bruce Willis played, uh, Quentin had written it for another actor who couldn't do the part. And Bruce really wanted the John Travolta role and he was committed to a Die Hard movie. And so one day we were talking and we all said, well, what about what about making him the boxer? He's got a limited amount of time. And instead of being a younger boxer on his way up, we'll have him as a slightly older boxer on his way down. And oh, okay. those are the things that happen in casting all the time.
1: Yeah, so it helped, you know, just helps shape the story just by the actor that you put in that role, yeah.
2: Well, and it's... It's the it's the timing of the right actor and the ro- role coming together, and
1: yeah. And then, know, and then with that, with 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 Quentin, was there? Did he, you know, did he have certain people in that that he he just knew he had to have in that film?
2: Oh sure, I mean a lot of the roles, um, you know. Again, I, it's a little tough for me. That was a long time ago, but I so I don't remember all the stories, but. You know, Harvey Keitel, he had written that role for Harvey. And I think Frank Welly was a friend. So if I remember correctly, and so he wrote that role for for Frank. Right. Um, And, um, you know, he was really set on John Travolta from the very beginning.
1: Okay. Yeah, he's great in that as well. (laughs) He's so good.
0: Terrific. Um, obviously right now, Gary, we find ourselves in a, in a changed world in all industries and Mm -hmm. walks of life. Um, and of course, major movie and TV productions have been shut down for a very long time in response to COVID-19. But I wonder what is the new normal for Hollywood productions in the coming months and years? And have you been instrumental in, in, in any of those kind of new normal processes for managing productions?
2: Well, nobody knows what the new normal is. We are in the process of each discipline, uh, you know, from the set caterers to the cinematographers, to the uh, grips, and, um, to the camera people, we're all putting forward our, um, what we see as the best way to protect ourselves to, to the combined studios. Uh, the studios are combined in, in the business sense through the what's called the AMPTP. It's the Association of Motion Picture and Television mm. Producers. And anytime that you hear the writers negotiating for their contract or the actors negotiating for their contract, that's who they're negotiating opposite uh, a table at. Um, and so I happen to be on the board of directors for Teamster Local 399. It's the Teamster... Uh, It's the Hollywood Teamster Union Mm -hmm. and casting directors are represented there. So uh, we have been working for casting directors to put together what would be the safest way for us to continue casting without exposing ourselves or actors to unnecessary risk. And I think that when, when, when it all comes down, that it will Pretty much be virtual for casting actors. We do a lot of that now, anyway. Uh, yeah. We do worldwide searches now, and you know I can do it from a from my desk in Burbank if I need to, um, it's, and I've done it a, a number of times. You send out instructions to actors as to what you're looking for. They get the script. They get the sides. Sides are the parts of the script that we tell actors to read and they put themselves on some format of taping, which, which we tell them to do. Um, And then they upload that back to our offices or computers and we look at them. And then if we want to direct them, we set up Skype calls with them and give them direction, read with them again. And now with zoom, we can actually Record that reading, and present it to the director, producer, studios, networks, to for a decision.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, just with technology like that now, it's just you know it's so easy to get sort of decent footage and just easily instantly send it to someone, isn't it? So, yeah, it I is, think and technology- it's and
2: it's getting better. It just keeps getting better.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
2: I mean, it's just amazing. You can be an actor. And self-tape, you know, as long as you put up a background that's a decent gray or blue and you get a circle lamp from but you're inexpensive off the mm-hmm. internet and you can use your phone. Yeah. You record it. You are we gonna see movies produced movie.
0: over uh, are we gonna see movies produced over Zoom, Gary? <laughs> I think we are. But <laughs> <laughs> how do you think that's gonna change actual productions? You know, is there gonna be restrictions keeping actors separated and you know, how I you- would
2: imagine there will be restrictions. I would imagine they'll be figuring out how to, you know, put, you know, h- how to keep a crew as safe as possible. Hmm. Um, I would also imagine that crew members will be tested. You know, I just this is, this is just my imagination of what's going to go on, but yeah, but yeah, it's. Um, and there'll be a little less production for a while.
1: Right. Yeah. So next question, if, if, if you're um, when you're auditioning someone that's really well known for a role,
2: mm-hmm.
1: how, how difficult is it not to take, or, you know, you need to take into account, obviously their previous work, but how much does that color your impression of them when you're casting for a role?
2: Well, usually if it's somebody well-known, they're only coming in for the producer and director. They're not coming in... I mean, for the most part, they're not coming into a casting office and going on film with a casting director. Right. Um, I don't know how you separate out somebody's history, um, but the great thing about great actors... Is so many of them are chameleons. Whether whether we see it or not, they have the ability to play different roles, and we see them in different ways. Um, the best example of it I can give is one that I, I, I will never. I mean, this will stay with me. Uh, I think until my dying day. I. I was working, I was the associate casting director on the Pope of Greenwich Village and Geraldine Page came in to read for the role that she was nominated for a supporting actress for in that movie. Mm, and right. it was a, a mother of a sort of low life Irish gangster. And she, I had to read opposite her, which I I, I thought I was going to just, keel over guy (laughs) reading opposite you know Oscar winner Geraldine Page and (laughs) I turned around after we finished reading and every person in the room was in tears and I literally I've only experienced it once or twice again I literally felt an energy going from her to me I know that may sound hokey but I, I can't explain in any other way. It was just magic. Sure. Um, so, right. yeah. So, you know, what an actor has to do, and I, I, I'll be I'll probably be repeating myself a number of times on this. To prepare for an audition, an actor has to be do their research, do as much research they can on the project. So if the project is coming from say dick wolf you know mm-hmm. you look at what dick wolf has done in the past and you'll you'll see that there's there's an essence to it that you can keep in the back of your mind as an actor to so that you know dick wolf probably isn't writing a a rom-com sitcom i mean he you know there's a right. there's a weight to it there's a seriousness to it and you so you know you have to be prepared as an actor you have to do your research you have to do your homework and then you have to make a decision as an actor as to how you will approach that role and how you will present it to make it your own and that's what you need to do to walk into an audition and then When you're in a casting director's office, you have to be open-minded. You have to be able to listen when a director or a producer or a casting director says, that was great, let's try it another way. Let's give that character a lot less menace and make him more approachable. Or let's, let's give her, there's a secret that she's keeping underneath. And as an actor, you have to take a moment and figure that out and internalize it into you so that it becomes an organic part of what you're doing during that audition.
0: Does that make sense? Incredible Absolutely. advice. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and you know, obviously from the perspective of of the performance artist, extremely useful for our listeners. And and I think as well, I'd love to know um, on behalf of our listeners, if, if there might be some advice for anyone who might be interested in a career in casting, what, what would you tell them?
2: If somebody were interested in a career in casting, if they were in Los Angeles, uh, if you notice after a casting director's credit on either film or television, you usually see three letters, CSA, and that's the Casting Society of America. So that's our professional association. It's not our union. It's our professional association. It's our sort of artistic meeting of all casting directors. Mm -hmm. We now run a program through uh, one of the, I I forgot what university we run it through, but we now run a program in Los Angeles to train people to go into casting. It's been around for about two years, three years. So that's one way of getting into casting. Uh, The other way is to figure out how you can get, um, a job as an assistant in a casting office. Mm -hmm. Assistants are generally more uh, clerical, but that's where you learn. I started off as an assistant and I was doing it on Selectric typewriters. I was typing up deal memos and contracts and casting lists, but I got to observe a a really amazing casting director's process and
1: learn. Yeah, you're still absorbing the information, aren't you, that you're you're witnessing, yeah. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Fantastic. Well, Gary, thanks again for joining us on the Movie Mouth podcast this week. Yeah, my pleasure. And, Good uh, questions. <laughs> and uh, of course, um, if uh, if anyone's interested uh, in, in Gary's oeuvre, you can look back at many of the movies that we've mentioned here. Um, and of course, many of the TV series and shows that uh, that Gary has been a part of. But for now, thanks for joining us and have a great evening. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks very
1: much, Gary. Thanks.
0: How much did you enjoy that
1: interview, Phil? That was that was fantastic. It was really really good to hear Gary's, you know, insight into the world of casting and his experiences that he's had, which obviously sounds very varied and uh, some mm. awesome
0: stories he's got as well. And yeah, and the, and the future of productions post COVID as well, and how he's been, he's actually instrumental in in kind of maintaining. Ongoing productions uh, in this current climate, which is which is really interesting. I loved what you were saying about seeing Bruce Willis on the street in LA, and and then asking him about you know the Twilight Zone, and then ended up casting him in the in the in the kind of remake of that series was was pretty fun. Yeah, and we're we're going to be bringing you more interviews with various individuals from different elements of the film and TV industry over the coming weeks. It's our hope here at the Movie Mouth Podcast that we can shed more light on not just what you see in front of the camera, but also the hundreds of departments behind the scenes that bring our favorite movies to life, as well as how you can find your way into those industries. So this week on Video Store Corner, we're taking a look back at Quentin Tarantino's masterpiece, Pulp Fiction. So Phil, let's get straight into this. What are your thoughts on this movie?
1: Well, I don't think there's much more I can say about how awesome this film is and just how it still stands up today. I mean, I watched it again this week just to sort of refresh myself. It had been it had been a few years probably since I've watched it, but I absolutely love this film. Yeah.
0: It's a, I mean, it is a stone cold masterpiece. And same as you, I probably hadn't watched it in a couple of years um although it's the kind of movie if it's on tv you'll kind of stick with it and probably see out a few scenes or or watch till the end of the the credits um but it's just such a reminder of of how perfect movies can be what would you say is your favorite scene i think
1: there's a lot to enjoy in that i i do i think just because of the tension in it as well the 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 sex dungeon scene <laughs> <laughs> with um ving rames and um bruce willis's characters bring out the i gimp. think bring out the gimp it's just so it it's so full of tension like you know they're just like what the hell is going on
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's and i thought about it actually when i was watching it. i thought the bit where um butch bruce willis's character uh, he, he manages to escape. He knocks out the gimp and then uh, he's he's going to run and, and leave um, Marcellus Wallace to his fate, which is unfortunate. Um, but, you know, he decides to turn around and he's sort of doing that weapon selection thing from behind the counter of the shop that they're in. And it's when he, he decides um, that he's going to use that sword, the samurai mm-hmm. sword,
0: mm-hmm. and he's
1: like edging down the stairs and at the time, I, I thought about it this week when I was watching it. I was like, I just want this to—it's it, so tense. Like when he's going back down, you really want him to like get re- revenge. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to just like fast forward it, like to the you know to see what happened. Even though I know what happens, you know, I've seen it. A, I've seen it loads mm-hmm. of time, But I love, I love that scene. I think it's really
0: good, and it's the tension's um, incredible. And, and you know, the the sheer acting power of Bruce Willis in that scene when he. He walks out, he unlocks the door and he's halfway out of the store and he kind of stops and then kind of looks back around. He goes and he picks up the hammer, you know, and then he kind of trades it up for the baseball bat. Then he trades it up for the mini chainsaw. And as you say, he he sees that kind of quintessential now, you know, Tarantino um, samurai sword you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and all,
1: all the while, while the horrible noises are going on in the background, like the right. muffled sort of, you know, it's just like, right. oh.
0: Yeah. It's funny, I was thinking about watching this again and and thinking about Gary's comments on you know, Bruce originally auditioning for the Vincent Vega role that was eventually taken by, by John Travolta and being disappointed at the start that he couldn't take that. Um, and while I was watching it, a lot of the Vincent Vega roles, I was trying to see Bruce Willis in, in, in that performance. And it just, I just couldn't see it, you know, um, for me, I, I, the Jack rabbit slim scene, I know it's a cliche, but it's such an incredible scene between Vincent and, uh, Marcellus Wallace's wife, Mia, you know, the fact that he's got to take out this kind of mob boss's wife, he's got to be courteous, you know, and respectful. And he can't let anything happen in case he gets, thrown out of a window into a yeah. greenhouse <laughs> like a
1: four stories down
0: yeah yeah um so you know so so i think that's a great scene obviously and it's, it's it's such a cliche but also you know another bruce willis moment and it's weird because i never think of this as a bruce willis movie do you know no, what i mean i never I think of pulp fiction yeah. as a bruce willis movie but i'm always
1: like oh yeah bruce willis is in that as well
0: it, exactly and when you see him and you're like all these scenes are great. He's got that suede yeah, perfect bomber jacket yeah. on, you know. Yeah, but the um, the Butch Coolidge scene, where you know he leaves uh, after the the boxing fight because he's in a uh, WBA fight against another another fighter that he's supposed to throw, and of course he ends up not only knocking out his his competitor, but also killing him in the ring. Um, obviously, you know by accident. And we then see him escape out of a window and into a taxi, uh, and then he eventually meets up with his uh, his French girlfriend in the in the motel, uh, who who rather weirdly desperately wants a pot belly and doesn't stop going on about having a potbelly until Butch Coolidge turns around to her and says, "If you had a potbelly, I'd punch you in it,"
1: which I <laughs> yeah. find
0: such a weird line. <laughs> it's a very odd line. Yeah. In this like in this kind of like sexual moment where they're kind of about to make love. <laughs> um but that's life you know and 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 that's tarantino and i absolutely love all of the movies so it's, it's hard to pick a favorite yeah and is there anything this is going to be hard now thinking about this like it's like pulling teeth but is there anything you don't like about this movie
1: uh, i really don't think there is no <laughs> there's not there's nothing i don't like about it it's just such a watchable classic it's just yeah every every performance in it is amazing
0: this this movie makes me hungry to revert back to our question from last week. It starts with <laughs> the breakfast scene, you know, garcon, coffee. Um, yeah. you know, through to um, you know, the big kahuna burger, uh, through to the pancakes that Vincent's having. Um there's so much food in this movie. The steak coffee. in the
1: in the uh, in the, the diner.
0: Yeah, 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 that's right. Steak bloody as hell. Um yeah. with a, with a with a vanilla coke. <laughs> and then the and then the burger, um, bloody with a five dollar shake.
1: Yeah, do, do they do you put any alcohol in that?
0: <laughs> yeah, five dollars. You put an alcohol in that. <laughs> um, obviously, with a great role, a great small cameo from Steve Buscemi as yeah. the waiter, Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly, yeah, which, which is awesome, or Bloody Holly. Um, <laughs> but no, I love I love I love those elements. I think for me, there's one thing that it's not a it's not a negative uh, about this movie. One thing I really want to know why is why why was Vincent Vega in Amsterdam for three years and what was he doing there? I would love to know <laughs> yeah. what John Travolta was doing in Amsterdam for three years, other than smoking pot and eating French fries with mayonnaise, being
1: what well, is essentially a, a hitman or a you know, yeah, was he doing the same thing? Who knows? Who knows?
0: Who knows? I, I would love to see you know like a kind of spinoff of that. That would have, we'll been, have to get uh,
1: Quinton on and ask him.
0: We we absolutely will Quentin. <laughs> if you're listening, please uh, pick up the phone, man. <laughs> what would you say um, is your favorite Tarantino movie?
1: Uh, that uh, this is it. Pulp Fiction is definitely up there for me. But yeah. I am I am a big fan of I love Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. I really like Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. But I think um, yeah, just this whole catalogue really is amazing. But Dust Till Dawn is great as well. I love that. That's a good yeah. fun film. Obviously, he
0: that was that was written by co-written by him and uh, Robert Rodriguez, who directed. Directed, it. yeah, that's right. He's unhinged in that movie, though. Obviously, he has a he has a starring role in that movie, and his acting's definitely better in From Dust Till Dawn than it is as Jimmy in uh, in the Bonnie situation scene in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think. <laughs>
1: It's a bit wooden uh, when he when he sort of gives his lines, and he's nuts as well. He's <laughs> like probably nuts, but
0: wouldn't change yeah. that for the world, though. I I, I love no. him being in there. It just yeah. gives such a a flavor. Being you know this, it goes from basically being about this dead body in his garage to being about the fact that he, he doesn't want his wife to come home, find out, and then divorce him. <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he and doesn't want to give away his best linen to cover up bloodstains in a car because it was a wedding gift
0: yeah but he forgets that his uncle Marcellus is a millionaire and uh, he could buy him a whole new bed set <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just want to i want to drink some of that gourmet coffee of his lots of cream and lots of sugar <laughs> like Winston Wolfe um, but yeah it's just, I mean obviously this is probably it's its probably my favourite I also and this is you know people may be switching off in the droves when they hear this but I also love Jackie Brown yeah um, you know Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Forster, Robert De Niro in 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 that movie, just absolutely incredible, um, incredible performances all, all round. But um, I absolutely love that movie. Also the the soundtrack, even Michael Keaton's in that movie, which you kind of forget that he's in there. Yeah, um, yeah the soundtrack I love the the Delphonics and uh, Across a Hundred and Tenth Street and all that kind of thing. Um, but um, but no, I'd, I'd say it's it's, it's, a, it's a tough one between Pulp Fiction and, and Jackie Brown. So that was Pulp Fiction. Uh, we, we don't tell you anything that you didn't already know. It's a masterpiece. If you haven't watched it in a while, after listening to Gary's interview, it's definitely worth picking up again and watching. On next week's Movie Mouth podcast, we'll be bringing you more of the same with news, reviews, interviews, and all the regular movie-related fun. But before we do, please follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts at at Movie Mouth Podcast and hit subscribe or give us a nice five-star review on your podcast player of choice. All that's left for me to say is, Phil. Yes? You remind me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Voodoo? You do. Remind me of the babe. <laughs> Bye, Phil. See you later. Bye. Goodbye.